Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of The Murder Games. I am back from not a vacation. I've been lazy and I've been busy. That makes any sense. I've been lazy because um, I'd sit at a desk all day at work typing, and when I come home, it's really hard to get in front of a computer and type. Um, so I apologize for that. Um, it's it's not that I don't want to do it. It's just, uh, like I said, it's very redundant and having to type and look at a computer all day and then come home and do the same thing. But I know you guys want it, you know, so I need to just suck it up and, and, and do it because I know that you guys you know want to hear these episodes. Um, and I'm busy just because it's nice out. It's summertime. I got housework to do, like I mentioned. Um, and, you know, I want to spend time with my kids when I have them. So I don't think that I'm giving up or something happened or anything like that. Uh, you know, it's just like I said, I've been lazy and I've been busy at the same time. But I will try to do my best to, you know, get these out every week. If not, don't worry, it's on its way. Um, so now that you have that explanation, let's get into uh, this uh, week's episode, I guess this week's, let's just get into this episode. Um, so this episode is part two of Maury Travis, who is pretty ridiculous. Um, I guess you consider him as a, a serial killer. He tied people up in his basement and tortured them, you know, prostitutes, sex workers, whatever you want to call them. Um, you know, tortured them. It's kind of like, I don't want to say a BTK thing, but he bound them, he tortured them, then he killed them. Uh, and he did it all in his basement. Unfortunately, um, they didn't catch him in time. But you know, he they they did catch him, but it wasn't you know until you know X amount of uh, in the teens, seventeen I believe, or so um, on record. I think um, is what they what they got. Um, but as we listen to this episode. You know, we'll discover what happens and how they did it. Uh, so without further ado, let's get into it. Detective Marcia Corley had only been a detective of St. Charles County Sheriff's Department for two weeks when she was assigned to the squad tasked with searching a vacant lot in West Alton, Missouri on May 25, 2002. She and the other detectives were searching for a homicide victim, potentially the 17th victim that serial killer Maury Travis had imprisoned, tortured, raped, and then strangled to death in his basement. The search police had done for the serial killer had stalled, but then Maury Travis sent the local newspaper an anonymous letter that would be the beginning of his reign of terror. The note was accompanied by a map to the body of his 17th victim. The existence of this body would help police know if they were dealing with a mere attention seeker or a legit serial killer. Detective Corley said arriving at the scene, she was prepared for a long hot day as she walked the grassy area between the wood line along the former railroad tracks on St. Charles Street and observed what she thought was a rather large mushroom in the grass, but instead it was a bleached human skull. If you can recall, in episode one, I discussed how Maury Travis's behavior as a child 
could have been an early warning sign for psychopathic behaviors as an adult. Travis became addicted to crack, which would be the beginning of his troubles with the law. He would struggle with his addiction for the rest of his life and be in and out of prison four times for robberies and parole violations and uh, possessing drugs. In 2001, after Travis's third stint in prison, at the age of 35, he was released and began to solicit prostitutes and take them back to his home. Travis would let the women leave after they had smoked crack and engaged in consensual sex, but many of these women would never be seen live, alive again. Travis would film himself with these women as he verbally scolded them and tortured them with a stun gun. Travis would imprison the women in his basement for days at a time. He would strangle them and leave their bodies in overgrown lots in East St. Louis on both the Missouri and the Illinois side of the Mississippi River. Police were finding bodies uh, once every five to six weeks, but their investigation went nowhere as Travis was sent to prison in November 2001 for violating probation by possessing drugs, of course. He was released in March 2002 at the age of 36. So if you remember from the previous episode, he had already been locked up two or three times, I think. So now this is three or four or five times. This is where it becomes an issue of the judicial system, you know, letting people get out after X amount of times, or even though they've been there X amount of times. You know, maybe... Two times I can understand, you know, you going to jail and stuff, but once you're there for, you know, three, four, five, six times for the same thing or, or something in the same realm, maybe it's time that, you know, those people not be let out for quite some time, if at all, ever again. If you remember from their first episode, Bill Smith, the reporter from St. Louis Post-Dispatch, wrote an article for the newspaper about the nine linked homicides and conducted an in-depth profile of Teresa Wilson, one of the murdered women. His article portrayed her as more than just a sex worker or murder victim and talked to her friends who told him about her loving relationship with her daughter and her struggles with drug addiction. The article ran on the front page of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch on May 19, 2002. Smith hoped to gain empathy and bring public attention to the risks that prostitutes face every single day. I know prostitution is illegal, and honestly, I think when I was 18, 19, 20, one tried to pick me up. Uh, I was with some friends riding in the back of the truck, and in the back of his truck, going through the town I, li I, I live in. I think we were at a stoplight or something, and as we were turning some woman, you know, asked if uh, if I wanted to spend the time, spend some time with her or something. I knew exactly what she was trying to get at, and I pretty much ignored her. But uh, I, I don't know of my town having prostitutes. I'm I'm not saying that they don't, but I've lived here my whole life, and I don't. I've never really heard heard of uh, heard of it, or you know, people being arrested for it, or just even seeing them out on the street and I've never, never really had to deal with that. So I'm not sure whether it's uh, a part of this town's, I don't want to say history, but part of this town and what goes on, you know, in areas that I don't particularly uh, travel through. 
um, on the daily. But uh, Smith hoped to gain empathy, like I said, and instead of um, a man provoked who committed these crimes of torture, rape, and murder um, would come out of the shadows. Uh, let me rephrase that. Smith hoped to gain empathy and bring public attention to the risks that the prostitutes face every single day. Instead, a man provoked who committed the crimes of torture, rape, and murder will come out of the shadows. On May 24, 2002, five days after the St. Louis Post-Dispatch published the article about Teresa Wilson, an anonymous letter was written and stated, quote, nice sob story on Wilson. How about you write one on Greenwade? Write a good one, and I'll let you know where many others are to prove that I'm real. Here's directions in number 17. Search in a 50-yard radius from the X. Put the story in the Sunday paper like the last. End quote. Back in the last episode, if you remember, Alyssa Greenwade was the first body that was recovered about a year earlier, on April 1st, 2000. Since then, police have found eight bodies and now have instructions to find another. The letter included a printed out map of nearly of, of a nearby area in West Alton where two other victims have been found. Writer Bill Smith contacted the police, who then dispatched the team to search for the 17th victim. The skull that Detective Marsha Corley found had been left for so long that the skin and hair had been decomposed and the bones had been bleached by the sun. Police would find more skeletal remains near the skull as the torso was still partially available, quote-unquote, available, and in a woman's dress. It proved to the police that the letter received from the killer was from the killer himself. Travis had claimed that this was his 17th victim, but only 10 bodies, including this one, had been recovered, which would mean there are about at least seven more murdered women unaccounted for. Travis could have been lying about the mur murder or number of his victims, which is common in a narcissistic psychopath, but Travis also could have been trying to manipulate and control the investigation with false information. He probably would have enjoyed sending the police on a wild goose chase for victims that didn't even exist to create more hysteria and panic for the public. But his map led them to one of his victims as promised. The only way for the police to know for sure how many victims there was was to in fact catch him as soon as possible as the letter Maury Travis sent to the Post-Dispatch was their best piece of evidence so far. The letter was postmarked May 21, 2002, two days after Bill Smith's article ran in the paper. The American flag stamp was neatly put upside down for a return address that was written, I, I, I thralled them. I'm not sure if I said that right, if I spelled it right to pronounce it right, but I thralled them um, with a New York City address, even though the postmark had indicated the letter was sent locally. I thralled them was a name of a website that featured bondage and torture porn. I don't know how you can find it um, or even what to put in to find it. I thralled them. It's uh actually you know what I did look for them I did look for it um, I think a few days ago or last week or something I can't remember how I how I found I don't I don't know if I found the exact um, website or actually I didn't even look to see if it was an exact website 
because once I put in, I think, uh, bondage and, and stuff like that, bondage porn, I think I, I put in, um, it took me into a different realm of regular um, Google searching. Uh, and I didn't want to go any further just because I didn't want to go down that rabbit hole. Uh, but uh, like I said, I'm not sure exactly what, what the website was that, uh, he, he used, but, um, I thought them was the name of a website that featured bondage, bondage and torture porn. Like I said, the owners of the website were investigated, but there was no link link to the victims. FBI special agent, Robert Morton stated the return address on the envelope indicated its author was informing the world that he held the victims and controlled them for his pleasure. The FBI believed that placing the stamps upside down was done intentionally to attract attention as an up downside or upside down flag is an official recognized symbol of distress. So if you're ever driving through a neighborhood and you see a flag that's upside down in the window or something like that, you might want to contemplate, you know, letting authorities know just in case, because I have known that to be um, a fact that, you know, an upside down flag is something to pay attention to. Uh, the FBI believed Travis was letting them know that lives were at stake and that he was willing to keep killing until getting caught. Travis seemingly enjoyed being the center of attention and the specifics in his letter are similar in many ways to how he made his victims dance and call him master, affirming his dominance. Travis probably felt he was in control, a common trait that a lot of psychopaths need for their lack of dominance and power, which comes from a deep-seated fear of rejection and loss of control. Travis's long, lifelong struggle with his crack addiction was a losing battle for him, and he was likely enforcing an extreme amount of dominance with his victims to compensate for his psychological dependence on his addiction. This uncontrollable need for power and heightened sense of ego also dictated that he was trying to make it clear to everyone that he was in control of them as well. Travis was careful not to leave any fingerprints or DNA on the note or the map or the envelope as he most likely used gloves when handling the letter and envelope. He then sealed it with use. He sealed it without using his saliva, so detectives, you know, couldn't get any of his DNA, his fingerprints, or his DNA. The detectives contacted several local print shops, like office supply stores and specialty shops, trying to find a match for the print Travis had used, but came up empty-handed. On May 29, 2009, the FBI turned their investigation to the map showing the location of the 17th victim that was included in their letter Travis had mailed to the Post-Dispatch. After a detailed search of online mapping websites, they concluded the map had been gen- generated using Expedia.com. Yeah, the actual Expedia.com. Law enforcement was still new to online investigations well, they were actually they were still new to the online investigations game, and most police departments didn't have cybercrime divisions, and no one had yet used the internet to capture a killer of this kind. Authorities took the map to Expedia, who informed them that all records of access to their website could be tracked through its then parent uh, Microsoft. I'm not sure if anybody has ever heard of it, 
but Microsoft was a parent company of Expedia back then. I'm not sure if they are now or not. The FBI obtained a grand jury subpoena directing Microsoft to present all data, graphic files, log files, user account information, and session information associated with searching the West Alton area on May 18, 2002, the day before Bill Smith's article ran through um, May 21, 2002. So only about three days worth. The day Maury Travis mailed the letter in. Law enforcement hoped the information from Microsoft would help them compile a list of people who used the site to search for West Alton and help create a list of possible suspects. During the Maury Travis investigation, getting a subpoena for online search histories was seen as equivalent to getting an approval for wiretapping on a phone. As the FBI worked on tracking the origins of the letter, Bill Smith got to work writing another article about Alyssa Greenwade, the woman who, who was uh, first found. She was the first body that was found over a year earlier. On April 1st, 2001, the FBI decided it was best to comply with Travis's demand from the letter that he wrote. Bill Smith's article about Greenwade would run on the front page of the Sunday paper just as Travis had wanted. They hoped that his harmless form of compliance, that this harmless form of compliance with the killer's demands could lead to further communication and more opportunities to catch him. Smith wrote about Greenwade's friendship with Reverend Juan Guzzi, who was helping a 34-year-old mother of three with her cocaine addiction. Like the article about Teresa Wilson, it was empathetic. It was an empathetic portrayal of a woman who's, whom society disregarded. And as Travis insisted, the story ran on the front page of the Sunday paper on June 2, 2002, while the reporters at the Post-Dispatch waited to see if Travis would respond. The investigation was narrowing in on him through more advanced technology. The newspaper never got a second letter from Morris, or Maury Travis, because he would be in police custody before ever having a chance to write back. On June 3rd, 2002, the day after Bill Smith ran his second article at Maury Travis's demand, Microsoft provided the FBI with a spreadsheet that showed only one person had access Expedia.com and searched the area of West Alton, Missouri during the dates the detectives provided. On the evening of May 20th, 2002, Maury Travis zoomed in on the map of West Alton approximately 10 times. The final time was an exact match of the map sent to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Microsoft gave the authorities the IP address that had been accessed, accessing the site but couldn't provide a name. An IP address, address, if anybody out there doesn't know, is a series of numbers assigned to your computer by your internet service provider that allows the network to send information to your device in the same sense that someone needs your mailing address to send you a letter uh, or a remote computer or a network needs your IP address to communicate with your computer. To translate the IP address, the FBI turned to WorldCom Inc., which provided local telephone numbers to connected internet services with their dial-up customers. WorldCom assigned a temporary IP address to each customer for internet session. The question wasn't just who the 10-digit IP 
address belonged to, but who used it on the evening of May 20th. On June 4th, WorldCom's Internet Division identified the user on the evening of May 20th as MSN slash Maury Travis. It was easy to assume that Travis was being careless in his internet use, but at the time, people widely assumed their online browsing was as private as making a phone call or watching television. Many felt that deleting their browser history was good enough to conceal their activities. And once investigators had the name of Maury Travis, the police and FBI easily tracked him to his address in Ferguson, Missouri, and immediately put him under 24-hour surveillance while they prepared affidavits to obtain a search warrant. On June 7, 2002, three days later, at 7 a.m., Maury Travis was woken by a knock at the door. He answered, still groggy and still in his underwear, to find St. Louis homicide detectives, FBI agents, and FBI recovery team with a search warrant for his house. Travis was unfazed. He asked the investigators why they were there so early, and they told him, you know why we're here. Travis got dressed, Travis got dressed and joined the police in the living room where they proceeded to interview him. Sergeant Tim Sachs, a 22-year-old veteran of the St. Louis Police Department who had headed the investigation of the serial killing, said, quote, He wanted to control everything. He wanted to control where we sat. He wanted to steer the conversation several times, end quote. Sergeant Sachs recalled watching Travis's calico cat stroll through the room as they talked. Each time one of the investigators reached down to pet the animal, Travis stiffened and moved to the edge of his seat, saying that he didn't appreciate it at all. Travis and the police sat in his living room for the next two hours while investigators tried to engage Travis in small talk. Travis deflected the questions one by one. Where did you go? They asked him. Travis responded, repeating the question back to them. What did you do as a child? They asked. Nothing, he said. Went to school. What did you do? Sergeant Sachs said that he kept trying to redirect everything, every question he wanted to be in control. At this point, with the police in his own living room, Travis may or may not have understood that what he that he was on thin ice. Feeling threatened, he continued to, to try to exert his dominance in an effort to retain control of the situation. Travis never asked police why they had come or why they were sitting in his house. He never admitted to any wrongdoing, but he also didn't deny anything either. At this point, Travis was likely trying to determine how much the police knew and how much evidence they had against him. He seemed more interested in how the police had been able to find him. Finally, the investigators told him about the map. They said they knew it came from his computer and the FBI agents were going to search his home for more evidence. At last, Travis exposed some of his built-up anger. He cursed his computer and the internet as two members of the FBI evidence recovery team began to search his basement. The detectives were surprised to find the basement was in a state of disarray compared to how clean the rest of the house was. FBI Special Agent Robert Morton said, Of course it was a total mess. The downstairs had an entirely different purpose. The FBI recovery team found traces of blood on the floor and walls and began collecting samples. While Sergeant Saxon and Agent Morton pushed Travis for more information, 
They showed Travis several pictures of women they believe he had killed. In the pictures, the women were smiling and unaware of the tragedy that would soon come to them. The detectives asked Travis if, they, if he knew any of them. He said that he didn't. But about 10 minutes later, he asked if he could see the pictures of those dead girls again. And that's when Sergeant Sachs said to Murray, quote, We never told you these girls were murdered. We just asked if you knew any of them. End quote. So this is a common interrogation technique that law enforcement uses. They withhold information regarding the case to see if the suspect offers up any additional knowledge that almost nobody else would know. So basically, they never said that the girls were, were murdered or dead or anything. He just said, hey, do you, do you know these women? And, you know, 10 minutes later after saying that he didn't, he's like, hey, can I see those the pictures of the dead women? So that's basically them, him telling them that he's the one who did it or he or at least he knows that they're dead and he may have information regarding of how and who but they kind of already knew it was him anyway uh, travis was caught off guard and he was unable to stay ahead of the fbi and police agent morton and sergeant massax were polite towards travis going out of their way to make the interrogation uh, feel more comfortable or feel more like a conversation Travis was likely disarmed by their tactics and the fact that he wasn't immediately apprehended. This might have led Travis to believe that there was still a way to get out. Instead, the detectives were gathering as much information as possible to build a case against him. After Travis let it slip that he knew the women in the pictures were murdered, he fell silent and dropped his head, appearing vulnerable for the first time. Finally, Travis looked at the detectives and said, quote, come on, I'll take you, end quote. When they asked where, he said, quote, you know where I'm taking you. It's what you've been asking for the whole time, and I'll give you what you want, end quote. In the 1956 paper, The Psychology of Confession by Milton W. Horowitz, he wrote, quote, for the person to perceive confession as a path to freedom, he must be aware of his vulnerability and weakness. End quote. The FBI and police had made it clear that the evidence was stacked against him and Travis believed them. Many criminals cooperate with the police hoping that it might lead to a more lenient sentence or a plea bargain. It is possible that in this vulnerable moment, Travis was hoping for mercy. Sergeant Saxon and Agent Morton's interrogation had been strategically friendly and non-confrontational, which Travis could have interpreted as willingness to negotiate. The investigators confirmed Travis was going to take them to the location of another victim. They got in the car and Travis told them to drive east to East St. Louis, but as they came up on a bridge that crosses over the Mississippi River to leave Missouri for Illinois, Travis had a change of heart. He suddenly told the detectives that he changed his mind and they should take him to jail. He started yelling at them, repeating, lock me up, over and over and over. But during the course of Travis's conversation with the investigators, he was likely trying to find ways to manipulate the situation and calculate his best possible outcome. He knew that they had traced the map of the victim back to his computer 
and that they were searching his house for more evidence, which he understood. They would almost certainly find everything needed to lock him up for a long time. As they crossed over the bridge into uh, East St. Louis, Travis must have realized the full scale of his crimes he committed. Capital punishment was and still legal in Missouri. Travis was easily on track for the death penalty. It could be possible that Travis realized he had nothing to gain by helping uh, Sergeant Sachs and Agent Morton. Usually when criminals cooperate with law enforcement, it's after a lawyer has been has ne negotiated a plea bargain, but in Travis's case, he had not yet been promised any compensation for his assistance. He hasn't, he hadn't even had a lawyer yet. Whatever the reason was that Travis changed his mind, Sergeant Saxon, no, Sergeant Sachs and Agent Morton rerouted their squad car and took Travis to the police headquarters in downtown St. Louis. It's likely to assume that there would be more chances later to in, uh, get information on the whereabouts of Travis's additional victims. The detectives continued to interrogate Travis at the police headquarters. They told him they needed his help to provide closure for the families of the victims. A grin crept across Travis's face as he repeated the word victim. They questioned Travis for another three hours, and at one point, Sergeant Sex tried to engage Travis in, in a debate whether the desire to kill was an inherent trait or a learned behavior. Travis told Sex that he would never understand and that he had been like this since he could remember. In several nervous moments, Maury Travis did show concern for his mother. He repeatedly said, quote, what am I going to tell my mom, end quote, during his interrogation. It's hard to make sense of a cold-blooded psychopath who displays signs of concern and affection. At first glance, Travis's relationship with his mother seemed normal and even positive. It was most likely something more, much more flawed and complicated. It is said that psychopaths are incapable of empathy and love, but according to William H. J. Martin's 2002 paper, The Hidden Suffering of the Psychopath, this doesn't mean that psychopaths don't want to receive the love they compassion they cannot give. He writes, quote, As with anyone else, psychopaths have a deep wish to be loved and cared for. This desire remains frequently unfulfilled because it is obviously not easy for another person to get close to someone with such repellent personality characteristics. While Sergeant Sachs and Agent Morton continued their efforts to try to get a confession from Travis, the FBI recovery team was compiling evidence from his basement. Police seized his computer, ropes, and belts splattered with what appeared to be blood. They also found women underwear and wigs. Travis kept an extensive collection of written material that dealt with bondage and sexual slavery. They gathered samples of Travis's DNA and noted that the tires on his beloved Mitsubishi Eclipse matched the thread marks that were found on the leg of one of his victims. He had gathered materials and plans for constructing a concrete cell in his basement to serve as his, his personal torture chamber. He had written out instructions for dealing with his captives and marked off locations where he could pick them up, as well as uh, spots that he could dispose of their bodies. Searching his basement, detectives located a secret wall. Behind it, they found VHS tapes, one labeled wedding tape. 
After an hour and 26 minutes of wedding footage as a cover, the remainder of the tape contains scenes of Travis torturing and strangling a young, unknown woman until she was dead. The tape continued with Travis torturing the other woman, some of whom the police were able to identify. The detectives told Travis about the tape, asking him, quote, You know what we found in your basement? End quote. And Travis just simply replied, quote, Yeah, I knew you'd find it. End quote. Several times during Travis's conversations with the FBI and police, he did seem to understand the magnitude of what was happening. He would drop his head and say, I'm toast, over and over, and tell the detectives I'm not going back to prison. In the last episode, I mentioned the letter Travis has sent to the judge in his first sentencing, basically begging to be let out. It was the letter that uh, when, I can't remember who it was to, um, said, found out, that he had written a note, he basically said, I have no recollection, which was because it was one of those letters that I mentioned that everyone gets in the mail. Hey, sign up for this amazing credit card or whatever else it is, signed a printed signature of like the CEO or something. So that's kind of, of what, um, it, what it was. Travis described the horror of violence and sexual assault he witnessed while he was behind bars. The anxiety Travis had towards prison wasn't enough to overcome his addiction to crack as he returned to prison three times for violating parole and drug possession. So like I said, this guy got a numerous amount of opportunity to come out into the world and be a productive citizen. But, you know, I don't know a lot about addiction, but addiction must be more powerful than the willing to not be addicted. But after eight hours of interrogation, Sergeant Sachs handed the questioning over to Illinois State Police Special Agent James Walker and St. Louis Homicide Detective Roy Douglas because a lot of the victims were found on the other side of the Mississippi River in Illinois. The investigation had expanded to a multi-state investigation and Agent Walker and Detective Douglas proceeded with a confrontational way of questioning. After only 19 minutes into the interview, Travis asked for a lawyer and the inter, uh, interrogation was over. Travis was relocated to a maximum security one-man cell on the 8th floor of the St. Louis County Justice Center on the day of his arrest. Travis was charged with two counts of federal kidnapping for allegedly transporting victims Alyssa Greenwade and Betty James across state lines. Law enforcement planned additional charges awaiting the result of his DNA test, but Maury Travis had one final hand to play as he would rob the victims of the justice they deserved and leave as many as 10 women to ride in unmarked graves. Law enforcement had gotten a big win in arresting Maury Travis. They had spent more than a year investigating his homicides when the case went cold while Travis was in prison, and they weren't sure they'd ever find their killer. The evidence against Travis was mounting, and it looked as though as if it would be an easy trial, but on the evening of July 10th, which is an important day in my, in my history, uh, it's my birthday, guys. Um, so on July 10th, just three days after his arrest, Maury Travis hung himself in his cell like a pussy. Police were stunned. Mental health workers had examined Travis just two days earlier and established a plan to prevent him from uh, committing suicide. A security officer was required to check on Travis every 15 minutes 
and a fellow inmate served as a, quote, suicide prevention monitor. Uh, he was posted outside Travis's cell um, to watch him continuously. It might seem strange to trust an inmate with observing in an alleged serial killer, but it's more common than you think. So in this case of monitoring Maury Travis, the suicide prevention monitor followed protocol exactly by watching Travis through the window in his cell until 7 p.m. Travis's cell automatically unlocked for an hour to get, you know, to stretch his legs and exercise. And during this hour, Travis was allowed to stretch his legs, uh, like I said, in a vestibule. The monitor was required to step outside the vestibule to keep the two inmates separated. At this point, or at his post outside the vestibule, the monitor could watch through a window as Travis took a shower. He then saw Travis step back into a cell about 7.15. From the outside view, the monitor could not see the back of the cell. Travis's cell remained unlocked for another 45 minutes during his hour of exercise, so the monitor remained at his proper station. And I don't know whether he could... I don't know how big his space was to maybe move a little bit to see the back wall of it, whatever. I guess he, I don't know. I'm not sure on that one. This is kind of a lot of the family members, you know, think that this wasn't uh, done intentionally or done by Maury Travis himself. Uh, but during this 45 minute span, Travis penned a suicide note. He then pulled a noose made from his bed sheets through tiny holes in his air vent above his toilet. He stuffed toilet paper in his nostrils and put a washcloth gag in his mouth. So that, to me, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what goes through people's minds when they're getting ready to kill themselves. Uh, as of all the, I guess, celebrity suicides and uh, stuff like that, I've never really heard of someone stuffing their nostrils and putting a gag in their own mouth. But I kind of understand it because they just want to restrict as much airflow as they can because it is your body's natural, I guess, defense mechanism to, you know, fight for air any way possible. He pulled a pillowcase over his head and bound his own hands behind his back somehow. That's another uh, suspicious thing, in my opinion. I'm not saying that he, he couldn't have done it in front of him, sat down. Well, I don't even know how that would have happened, to be honest. I don't know how he would I don't know how he done it. It's weird to me. Um, when Travis is when Travis's cell door automatically locked at 8 p.m., the monitor found Travis hanging from the vent. A security guard failed to make two scheduled checks at 7:30 and 7:45 that Monday night, giving Travis the window he needed to end his life. It was the first suicide in the facility since it had opened four years earlier. Police never revealed the name of the officer who failed to follow protocol or explain why he did not complete his routine checks, but did say they were investigating the situation and the officer uh, could face discipline. Despite the fact that his wrists were bound behind his back, police and medical examiners had no doubt that Travis committed suicide. There were no additional signs of trauma other than the ligatures around his neck and wrists. It's likely that Travis took this additional measure to ensure his suicide worked. Stuffing the nostrils and his mouth, like I said, to prevent his body from performing a natural reaction of, you know, fighting for air for survival. Tom Byrne, the interim police chief in Clayton County, where Travis was held, said 
quote, we're not going to speculate on how he did it. He had knowledge of bondage, apparently a very extensive knowledge of it, end quote. Travis's suicide note was addressed to his mother. He tells her that she was the best mother a man could have and apologizes for being, quote, sick in the head. He said he never felt normal or happy at any time in his life. He wrote, quote, I think about the life I led and what's ahead of me. This seems to be the best solution for all involved, especially me, because I won't spend the rest of my life locked up or worse. Let them kill me with a needle, end quote. This indicates that more Travis feared execution by the death penalty, and rightfully so, given the extent of his crimes, he probably would have gotten it. Uh, I, I personally feel a lot of serial killers, even murderers, take the easy way out when they have to finally face their consequences. Uh, I can't even name all the um, murderers um, that I have covered or will cover that commit suicide um, just because... They want that one last dominance over, you know, police or FBI that they have control over what's going on. Because once they're basically once they're arrested and in um, in jail, they kind of lost almost every single aspect of dominance, um, you know, that they could have. And I guess to exert their last form of dominance as basically saying a fuck you. I'll, I'll go to my grave knowing where, you know, a victim where these victims are and you guys will never find them in hopes that they would never find them uh, and, you know, stuff like that. But it's just my personal opinion. They It's 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 a bitch move to do that. And I understand why they would because they don't want to you know, spend the rest of their lives in jail getting shanked and raped or assaulted or, or whatever. But still you've done the you've done the crime you need to do the time and thomas joiner's book why people die by suicide he describes a feeling of entrapment as a cause of suicidal behavior he writes quote suboptimal coping abilities lead to an individual feeling that he or she has no options and no way to escape from painful situations to escape the feelings of entrapment these individuals resort to suicidal behavior, end quote. Travis felt that death was inevitable for him, and rather than endure months of trials, he escaped his feeling of entrapment by hanging himself like a pussy. In his suicide note, Travis asked his mother to tell his family that he loved them dearly and wrote, quote, I love you most, but you, but you knew that, end quote. While there was no question for the police or medical examiners that Travis's death was a suicide, Travis, Travis's federal public defender, Lee Lawless, pointed out that if Travis was on suicide prevention, watch as jail officials claimed, it's unusual that he was permitted to have sheets. Three of Travis's cousins said that they did not believe official the official account of his death. Travis's cousin, Stephanie Talley, said it just doesn't add up quote i'm really and i really in my heart do not believe that his death was a suicide i do not end quote tally said travis was a sweet person though she was likely fooled by his ability to present himself as a normal person just like a ted, ted bundy anybody knows ted bundy i'm sure we've all heard of him he basically seemed like a really nice normal guy until 
a flip a switch flipped and he became uh pretty much the, de- the devil she also said that it was suspicious that he killed himself under suicide watch and maintained that if he wanted to kill himself he would have done it when police first took him into custody tally also said that police did not notify his mother sandra about his death before it was broadcast by television stations that monday night possibly an oversight but it was looked as disrespectful to his family the only power he still had over the police was the locations of the other victims but by killing himself he was able to preserve that small amount of dominance like i said earlier it's also possible that travis was trying to preserve a lie regarding the number of women he had killed he craved media attention and the possibility that he had fewer victims might you know ruin his reputation reputation killing himself travis probably hoped to mythologize himself and his crimes Friends and family of Travis's victims were stunned at the news of his death, feeling robbed at the closure. They felt Melinda Greenway deserved, who was the sister of Alyssa Greenway, to have, their, to have her closure. She said, quote, I wanted to talk to him. I wanted to ask him why. Unfortunately, she nor we will ever have the full story of Maury Tra- why Maury Travis committed the murders. We'll never know the exact amount of women he lured into his home and held captive in his basement though some estimate are as high as 20 women the timing on the investigation was nothing short of amazing exactly four months after travis printed the map from expedia.com the tour project was released to the public tour is free software that conceals its users ip address from anyone conducting network surveillance or traffic analysis It's very likely that Travis had access to this technology when he created his map. The police would have never been able to track him down in the same way. If Bill Smith had written his article just four months later, or if the Tor Project had released their software four months earlier, it's possible that Travis would have not been able to be caught and more women would have been tortured and strangled to death by the hands of him. Even though Travis's suicide marked the end of the homicide investigation, the effects of his crimes have lingered and emerged in unexpected ways. If you remember from part one, in the summer of 2014, Katrina McGall found herself living in a real-life horror film when she discovered that she was living in the house Maury Travis committed all these crimes. She was watching a documentary on serial killers that someone had recommended to her when she, was, when she recognized the ranch-style house. She had moved into it just four months earlier. Katrina was horrified to learn that as many as 17 women were tortured, raped, and killed in her basement. Katrina immediately called her landlord, begging to be let out of the lease, but was astonished to find that her landlord was Sandra Travis, Maury Travis's mother. Even 12 years after her son's death, Sandra remained quiet about her son's crimes. Interestingly enough, Missouri doesn't require landlords to disclose murders, suicides, or violent crimes that have happened on their properties, which is kind of bullshit. The St. Louis Housing Authority successfully negotiated the dissolution of Katrina's lease, and she was able to get out of the house where numerous women saw their final moments. So all in all, this ends the episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Special thanks to those who've reached out wanting more and more details and episodes. 
I will try hard to get an episode out every Monday, but if I don't, don't fret because it's on its way. This it's summertime, you know. I got housework to do. It's nice. Uh, I want to enjoy it. Um, I do sit in front of a computer typing all day for my job. So when I come home, unfortunately for you, it's not the thing I want to do the most. But you know, I will will myself um, to do that. I continue to do to do that. It might not be every Monday, um, but I will try to get one out every week. If not, um, you know, like I said, don't worry, it will be coming. Um, so thank you. Um, so thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Stay safe out there, all of you around the world listening, and always remember, nobody wins in the murder games.